Yeah, thank you so much, um, Christina von Hodenberg, and a warm welcome to everyone from my side as well. And it is my um, pleasure to introduce um, tonight's speaker to you, um, Alice Rio, who is currently professor of medieval history at King's College London. Um, she has also received her PhD from the same university in 2006 with a study on early medieval formularies. And that is roughly speaking for our non-medievalists collections of model texts, which were meant to help scribes formulate official legal documents. Um, I hope that is more or less near to the point. Um, this research um, led to two publications. Um, one is an in-depth analysis about the production and the use of these collections. And the other an English um, translation of two well-known formularies, um, that from Angers and that of Markov. And both publications were crucial, I'd say, to raise attention to these uh, long time neglected um, sources in, in scholarship and also academic teaching. Um, yeah, as proven expert on early medieval legal history, she continued her work on law as social practice in her second book, which is on slavery in the post-Roman world. And in it, she um, highlights the social dynamics and diversity of forms of unfreedom in the early Middle Ages, and um, convincingly shows that there was no lineal development from Roman slavery to medieval serfdom. And it um, is indeed a standard work, um, I'd say, um, which should be the starting point for any further discussion on the topic. Um, and she has also published on other aspects of Merovingian and Carolingian history, such as the social and political role of literature. And besides her university obligations, um, she also serves as a member of various editorial boards and um, is or was, I'm not quite sure, but I find it very interesting, a co-host of the podcast uh, Medieval History for Fun and Profit, which answers listeners' questions on the early Middle Ages. So uh, a very interesting um, project and form of public engagement, I have to say. And currently, um, she holds a Leverhulme Major Research Fellowship with a project on early medieval legal cultures. And I think that this project also forms the background, most likely, um, for her lecture tonight, which is called Legal Role-Playing and Storytelling in Early Medieval Francia. Alice, we are very much looking forward to your lecture. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, so I feel I should say that this paper is at an early stage, maybe not early in terms of how long I've been trying to work on it. Um, since in a way, a lot of it is about trying to take a step back and link together some things that I've worked on before. But it is early in the sense of um, not having too much by way of results, particularly considering I've been on leave. Um, so I don't know what you'll make of it, but I'll be very grateful for feedback before I go on with it much further. So thanks very much for attending and thanks in advance for, for your comments. So I, I understand there are even some non-Olivalists likely to attend from the Institute, and I, I know there are some in fact, so I've tried to make this meaningful for non-specialists, which may mean if you are an early medievalist, there will also be some things here that will be very familiar. So I hope both sides can bear with me. Um, so early medievalists can't really help working with prescriptive legal texts. We don't have a lot of evidence, though there is more than you might think. Um, we do have lots of laws, 
laws tell us about lots of things we would like to know about, but are not very much discussed in other kinds of sources. So it would really be perverse not to use them. But since at least the 80s and 90s, it's been harder to do this without a feeling of unease, which can only grow the greater the proportion of your argument rests on this evidence. Uh, most of us probably would prefer to rely on other sources if we could. So to rehearse briefly um, the key historiographical background, um, in 1977, there were two key radical statements made at the same time in German and in British historiography, uh, in Germany by Hermann Nelson and in Britain by Patrick Wormald. And both questioned fundamentally the connection of early medieval written laws with actual legal practice. So both argued that the legal texts that have come down to us from this period are extremely ill-adapted to being used in court. And also that there is no strong evidence from archival documents that they ever were. That is, there are no examples in Northern Europe of a clear reference to someone looking anything up in a law book in the course of settling a, a dispute. This is in the Frankish world. Curiously, this rejection happened at the same time in the 1980s and 1990s as historians' assessment of literacy and engagement with the written word during this period was going up. So this could have removed what had been in the eyes of historians a key practical obstacle to the reach of written law. But the overall consensus outcome was written law didn't really filter through to practice and it also wasn't because people couldn't have accessed it in some form if they'd really wanted to. Um, documents and charters instead became seen as the way to evade this top-down legal constitutional approach um, to get at early medieval norms and conflict more for the ground up, um, which in the 1980s methodologically meant from an anthropological perspective. So working from evidence of practice to uncover the more opaque, um, often non-explicit rules that subjects lived by, which may or may not have corresponded to the explicit discourse they held about their actions. So this happened about 35 years ago, and it represented a real paradigm shift. Since the 2000s, and especially I think in the last decade though, there has been a revitalized interest in written law. And this has happened across multiple different historiographies. So in Britain, Anglo-Saxon law is a booming industry, for instance, with recent books by Tom Lambert and uh, Andrew Robin. And there's also been work on other areas in Western Europe with the recent book by Tom Faulkner on the fate of the barbarian law codes during the Carolingian period and a special issue of early medieval Europe edited by Conrad Leiser. In German historiography, there is especially work by Karl Übel, um, Stefan Esters, Stefan Patzold, um, and some major ongoing editing projects like the new editions of Frankish capitularies. These capitularies are lists of decisions or action points typically issued by kings either to royal agents or sometimes with a more general value. And there's also new work on prescriptive legal materials coming from France, for instance, with work by Sylvie Joie or Magali Coumer. So early medieval law is back. Um, the state though, isn't really back, or at least it's not back to the same extent. And that makes for actually quite a strange and difficult picture. So to take in turn some of the main directions taken by this research. Um, first, there is royal ideology, and that's the line most compatible and in most direct continuity with earlier arguments against the practical relevance of written law. So the apparent irrelevance of written law to more practical purposes had made it a bit of a challenge to explain the very existence of written law codes 
especially manuscripts of law codes, which really do survive in remarkable abundance. So ideology was put forward as uh, a key reason for this existence. Um, ideology is undeniably an important aspect of laws. It would really, it would be mad to say otherwise, but it's often harder to use it to explain specific content, especially in the case of law codes, as opposed to capitularies. Capitularies do tie into royal priorities much more obviously. Um, as Tom Faulkner has recently pointed out, sometimes what law codes might have achieved in ideological terms, for instance, um, in helping to formulate and enshrine ethnicity, which is something that was often cited as a motive, um, can actually be just as obscure and hypothetical as any more practical uses. So although obviously ideology should always be taken into account, it's also not led to the most innovative recent arguments. Another line of interpretation has involved finding compatibility at the level of deeper cultural resonance, as opposed to straightforward application or imposition. So this sees laws more as riding on the coattails of communal enforcement on a local level and working with similar assumptions rather than challenging them. Um, this is a line explored, for instance, by Tom Lambert and Alice Taylor. So this connects back to practice, but the other way around. So law is no longer a test of government, but constitutes one further outcome of an existing and widely shared value system in which, um, into which royal government could insert itself. To date, I think this case has only been made for British legal materials, and it may work better there compared to other places. Um, I guess we'll have to see. Um, another major approach to the problem has been from the perspective of legal culture, which is a less precise concept, and perhaps it's been so fruitful because it is less precise. Um, the term Rechtskultur is equally current in German literature on the subject, but um, although I'm not sure when it first became really embraced by early medievalists in Germany, um, in, the English, in the English language discussion, the phrase legal culture was brought into common use by Wormald to mean that the sphere of the legal involved more than just texts. But the phrase now tends to be used actually in a very different way because it is now in fact mostly used by historians who are very much thinking in terms of texts. So the term is no longer connected very much at all with an oral legal culture and it's now used more in order to place probably a lesser burden of expectations on texts before they can be considered legal. As well as to put it only a little bit unkindly and I include myself anyway among those involved here, uh, probably also lowering the bar a bit for what it might mean for a text to be useful. So in practice, legal culture now really means more legal manuscript culture, which ends up closer to the approach championed by Rosamund McKittrick in her 1989 book, The Carolingians and the Written Word, um, where she, in contrast with the dispute settlement end of things, made the case for the vitality of written laws and their manuscripts. Um, rather than being particularly close to Wormald's approach, there's been a curious shift there from one end of the historiographical spectrum to the other. Um, and this has been a very fruitful field in the last few years, though the emphasis is now much less on rulers and their representatives than in McKittrick's work on that subject. Attention is being drawn ever more to processes of reproduction and reception and reordering and indeed forging. Um, the forged pseudo-Isidorian collections of legal materials in particular have been the subject of sustained intensive study, especially in Germany. Um, so this in itself is not that new an approach, but the answers that it's yielding are moving ever further away from the notion of royal government 
or the priorities of rulers or of the state. So one of the major insights of recent research has been that moments of boom in manuscript production are not necessarily, not even really that often connected with moments in which kings were issuing lots of laws. And in fact, the two processes have become ever more divorced. So first, the clusters of manuscripts that had once been thought to represent kind of the best, most direct evidence of state activity have now been pretty soundly dismissed as not actually issuing from any royal impetus. So for instance, both uh, Karl Ubel um, forcefully and Thomas Faulkner more mildly um, have rejected the reality of um, what was known as the Legis Scriptorium. Um, so a, a group of, of manuscripts um, that had been identified, so a group of scribes that had been identified by McKittrick as responsible for the production of law manuscripts and for diffusion driven from the center. This is now no longer thought really to emanate from the center. Um, and secondly, conversely, more is being made of the fact that so many manuscripts containing laws were produced in periods when and in places where kings were just not very active on the legislative front. And this has been discussed elegantly in an article published last year by Stefan Patzold on Ottonian Germany, uh, an era virtually free from royal legislative activity, but which was nevertheless responsible for a number of manuscripts of Carolingian capitularies comparable to the Carolingian era itself. Um, 10th century manuscripts of the law codes too um, have been not just capitularies, but also law codes have been getting more attention in the last few years. Um, now that after a long neglect, the 10th century in continental Europe is coming into its own uh, in all kinds of different fields, as evidenced in the last few years by the high profile um, HERA research project after Empire and in recent PhD theses. Um, and the movement even has its own Twitter hashtag, 10th century is best century. Um, so the result is that manuscripts and their uses, uh, their uses are now equally hard to connect to kings regardless of whether you're talking about the Carolingian era or the Ottonian era. So this levels the playing field. So a key result of studies of manuscripts containing legal prescriptive material is that it's increasingly impossible to see them as reflecting the reach or the ebbs and flows of royal power, or indeed really to relate in any straightforward way to a narrative told from a state perspective. Uh, as Patzold put it, um, if we pay proper attention to the textual transmission, capitularies should no longer be seen as normative texts originating from the ruler, but rather as lists of capitula produced by recipients. Um, this, he points out, is similar to the ways in which ecclesiastical legislation was collected and compiled. So the overall effect of recent research has been to reduce the state to the position of being only one actor among several whose perspective on law and legal process ought not to be overprivileged from the start. On the other hand, it is still hard to understand the rationale for such a level of demand from below when practical use is so difficult to establish. By from below, I should say, I mean here from the perspective of those not traditionally understood as governing. Socially, obviously, one very much assumes that manuscript production would have been driven by top tier persons or institutions. So one kind of answer can involve connecting back to ideology, just not necessarily royal ideology, for instance, through um, uses of the past reading of these manuscript compilations. So the kind of law as history reading. Um, Patzold, on the other hand, has argued for a direct practical purpose 
and shows active engagement with capitulary and conciliar texts on the part of scribes, um, editing, glossing, annotating, and drawing attention to particular clauses. There's one spectacular example in Paris, um, Bibliothèque Nationale 9654, I should have had slides. Um, anyway, uh, where it would seem perverse to interpret the annotations as evinced by anything other than a practical context of disputing, or at least gearing up for possible disputes, or maybe extrajudicial arguing, um, where the point of legal knowledge was not preparation for court, but trying to influence a decision or an agreement before things got to that point. Um, beyond capitularies and for, for the law codes, um, Faulkner and Ubel each have also made the case for practical engagement being really the most plausible key to understanding the manuscript tradition of the law codes. And there are differences between them. So Ubel makes more room for royal agency while Faulkner disputes the idea that Carolingian kings had really much at all to do with these texts or that they were even seen as royal law to be enforced. But whichever way you look at it, um, recent research, especially on capitularies, has increasingly gone in the direction of interpreting the production and the volume of secular law manuscripts, particularly capitularies, uh, as more significantly correlated with the activities of great churchmen, even if they were not by any means their only owners and producers, rather than with the activities of kings. And this direction of travel in recent research is actually eminently compatible with Patrick Wormald's original view. Um, his own solution to the problem of why manuscripts exist had been largely the same. Written laws and compilations were mostly made and pushed by churchmen who were professionally predisposed to value the written word and to do well and therefore seek to operate in a literate environment, uh, as well as to encourage and bully everyone else to do so. So they were even more likely to do this when in conflict with other churchmen. The glossed and annotated capitularies discussed by Patzold seem to fit best within that context. And in many ways, his point kind of works best for those bits of capitularies that are most like ecclesiastical legislation. Uh, in this context, the distinction between ecclesiastical and secular legislation becomes more and more difficult to uphold. Episcopal councils in general do seem to show greater interest in citing law and do make for a highly plausible setting for some of these texts. So, now we have a more expansive and positive view of the importance of law through manuscripts, but also in a perspective very much dominated by the agendas of various religious agents, which leaves us with a perhaps sort of unexpected marrying of perspectives from Wormald and McKittrick. This works better for some texts than for others. Most obviously it works well for capitularies dealing with church business and considered legislation. Um, the most concretely documented use of written law um, for direct close consultation of texts and glossing and mining for useful clauses survives in the case of highly educated churchmen pursuing extremely high-end conflicts or writing angry and threatening letters. Um, so Archbishop Pinkmar of um, Reims was a keen practitioner of both. Um, this high-end level isn't really enough to explain though the whole character of the manuscript transmission or the nature of the demand for for, that, for the, those manuscripts. So it's hard to imagine a high level forensic setting pitting bishop against bishop on matters of jurisdiction and church property as a reason for the transmission of the extremely varied body of laws that were also at the same time being copied the length and breadth of the Frankish kingdoms. Law codes like Salic law, for instance, 
um, rarely appear together with ecclesiastical legislation and it has a, a different though still lively trajectory in the 10th century. We can't change the fact that written laws and documents relating to legal practice do seem to speak very little to each other in Northern Europe. Um, Spanish and Italian documents refer much more commonly to sources of law. The renewed desire to take written law seriously has taken many forms, but most, most often the arguments have had to be developed internally on the basis of characteristics of the legal prescriptive evidence itself, rather than primarily through confrontation with other sources. This seems to offer the best chance to find some kind of answer to the critique of the 1980s, but at the same time, since it's founded on very different source material, it also makes it difficult to counter this critique effectively. So recent research has shown there was a huge appetite for written, learned legal materials, not driven by imposition, but by apparently genuine demand from end users. Um, Internal contradiction used to be seen as a big problem. It was seen as a big problem by Wormald and Nelson, and from the perspective of government, it would be. It's not really a problem if you look at it from the perspective of compilers for picking and mixing was, if anything, an advantage. What were once seen as contradictions now look more like adding to a repertoire that was all the stronger for being richer. Multiplicity is also now part of the picture, so collecting norms was worth doing because one could draw on them relatively freely limiting qualifying factors like the personality principle, um, according to which people could only refer to the law code applying to their own ethnic group, have now largely taken a back seat in the historiographical discussion. So on, th on the other hand, why such a legal culture, which in terms of content ranges far beyond church business should exist, remains difficult to gauge? Does the idea of demand for law work in a wider, more general sense? Or rather, since that's really the question we're more or less forced to ask, how might this have been possible? Did legal ideas filter through outside the verified circles involved in the direct reproduction and compilation of these texts? And what space was there for legal ideas and expertise in legal proceedings? And what kind of authority would they have offered? Saying manuscript transmission was primarily ecclesiastically driven doesn't amount to saying, of course, that it was irrelevant to the lay world. Um, ecclesiastical institutions were also key drivers locally in all sorts of ways, and their conflicts were not at all rarefied. They also needed justification in much lower down conflicts and in periods when they were ascendant. People in their localities were very well advised to adjust to their way of doing things. And it seems they often did adapt and swiftly as Warren Brown has shown for Bavaria. And of course, they had their own military and other followers, sometimes in far-flung regions, uh, to whom a broader section of secular legislation might be relevant. So this takes us into a wider world, and it's also a world where it's harder to find that space in which legal ideas might have operated, and in what form they might have done so. A free-for-all, non-exclusive, pick-and-mix dynamic certainly seems to be at work in one more practically-oriented kind of source, um, which Stefan has pointed out, I've worked on before, which is uh, formularies. And, and these are books of anonymized documents collected for use as models by scribes and their pupils. Um, and so it's something of an intersection between norm and practice. A lot of this material deals with ecclesiastical business, but a lot of it also deals with lay business. And much of it in the manuscript form in which we have it seems to have been collected in the context of religious institutions offering scribal services to the lay community surrounding them. 
the dynamic there suggests very much as in the case of laws, a kind of all out enthusiastic effort to accumulate legal cultural capital from many different sources with relatively little regard for geographical provenance or internal contradiction or archaism. Um, internal contradiction really didn't matter in the case of formularies because although they had a genuine normative value, um, formulae were not documents of jurisprudence, so they, they didn't tell users what to do, just how to express correctly whatever it was that they wanted to do. What the people whose business left a trace in formularies were doing in their documents was not necessarily demonstrating their adherence to any particular existing legal norms, but instead using a legal form in order to tap into a legitimizing cultural discourse. People used legal documents and legal language because this offered them a way of signifying and claiming their right to do whatever it was that they were doing. Um, so to give only one very famous example of a formula from the collection of Markov, um, there is a father who le leaves his daughter an equal share of her inheritance with her brothers, um, calling discrimination against women inheriting property in Salic law to be, uh, you know, calling it an impious custom and deciding to just go against it. Um, he didn't bother at all to claim that his action was in any way compatible with written law. Um, instead, he claimed validity for his chosen course of action by framing it in a correct legal form and adopting a distinctive formal legal register. Of course, we don't know if he was successful um, or if her brothers were able to counter that bold move. Um, so if anything, actually, what, when you might think that the more controversial the transaction that was being undertaken, the more irreproachably traditional and conservative the written form adopted had to be, and the more essential the use of a formula would have been. This could explain the keen interest in formal correctness in the production of documents, which is represented by the spread of formularies themselves. Um, and their textual transmission suggests a distinctive pattern of diffusion with repeated constant cross-fertilization and borrowing. Um, so this is two main implications. So first, it suggests an enthusiastic quest, an enthusiastic quest for documentary norms in general. And second, it suggests at the same time that it didn't really matter where these norms were obtained as long as they were recognizably proper and respectable models. Um, and again, um, the key point is that this dissemination of norms seems to have been driven entirely by demand from end users, the scribes and their clients, rather than by any sort of imposition from above. So again, all this fits pretty well with what is now thought to be the case for the transmission of written laws. And often we are actually talking about the same manuscripts. Um, so this kind of non-binding, deeply customizable legal norm was precious, not because it referred to any well-defined or even generally accepted body of law or custom, but because it represented a way of translating one social action into legal terms and so claiming greater validity for it. Um, in this context, legal language and practices didn't involve, um, didn't correspond to a coercive system, but to an exploitable resource. And this again, I think shows a basic continuity, a space in which law might fit, um, the continuity for the kind of concern, concern involved in reproducing the other legal, more prescriptive material I was talking about before. It also raises more questions though. Um, fluidity and multiple reference points do seem to be characteristic of this material, but if you could work up pretty much anything and with such unstable reference points, 
if you could conjure up such different representations of legal process and how it worked, how did that then actually help legitimacy? What was the mechanism? What gave law and legal concepts symbolic efficacy in the first place so that it would be worth making your case in such terms? And is this in fact still something that can be described as a legal process? Um, or should the use of legal language and process be seen more as a specialized branch of ritual? So something that is not so much about explicit rules or arguments as about the representation and legitimization of social power. These questions come up actually even more urgently in relation to actual surviving documents where it can be hard to tell apart how much the legal proceedings describes are merely illustrative of on the ground power relations. Um, and so in what sense framing the problem in terms of legal concepts, norms and arguments actually made a specific contribution in reaching any settlement. So I'll take an, as an example, an extreme case, which is in many ways unrepresentative, but I think it's unrepresentative in a way that's quite helpful. So as in it, it helps to set out the options particularly starkly. Um, it's a placatum, a judgment record uh, from 14th of March, 697, in which the Merovingian king, Shildebert III, ruled against Drogo, um, the son of the powerful mayor of the palace Pippin, who was involved in a dispute against the monastery of Tussonval over ownership of an estate at noisy sur um, So basically the abbot, uh, Magnoald, claimed that Drogo had violently seized revenue from the estate. Um, Drogo claimed that um, that revenue was his to take because Magnoald had actually given the property to his father-in-law uh, in exchange for other land, and so it now belonged to him. Um, the abbot Magnald counters that, yes, maybe he had discussed making the exchange with Drogo's father-in-law, but they'd never actually gone through with it. Uh, and at this point, Drogo is then asked to prove his version of events by showing a written document of exchange. And um, he can't present any, and so the tribunal finds against him. Olivier Guillot interpreted this in 1995 as a sign that Childebert III was a precursor of Charlemagne, and of Carolingian era justice by privileging rational proofs and legal inquest over the oath helping that had been favored by his predecessors. Most historians now are less convinced about the notion of progress in rationality from the Merovingian to the Carolingian period. Uh, in fact, happily, the whole rationality debate in relation to early medieval law has been pretty much abandoned. Um, so most of us will probably now go to the more cynical explanation that the king was using the argument that Drogo didn't have a document opportunistically in order to find against him. It does seem strange that Drogo was apparently not offered any alternative means of putting across his version of events or called on witnesses. Um, he seems to have argued his case forcefully before being undone by that bombshell. Um, so he at least didn't foresee that not having any documents to prove his side of the story would mean he would automatically lose the case. So Drogo seems to have lost on a point of procedure. Um, but it was a point of procedure that did not rely on any firmly established principle that only written documents constituted acceptable evidence. Um, the principles by which it was settled seem in fact to have applied only in this one judgment. The fact that the judgment is attributed to an assembly of leading men, a number of magnates, bishops, uh, count of the palace, um, who are described in the document as collectively responsible for the judgment, suggests that the king actually needed pretty substantial backup from the rest of the assembly in order to make the judgment stick. So at the time for this case, this particular group of people decided only the written word will do. 
Um, so even where, as in this judgment of it against Drogo, a legal decision seems to have been based on a technical question, did Drogo have a document or did he not? Um, these don't look like legal technicalities as we would understand them, but more like elements of ritual. That is the way legal arguments of this kind are deployed seems more understandable according to the logic of ritual than according to the logic of law as it's normally understood today. I wouldn't want to give the impression, by the way, just that I think that what we see in documents is actually ritual. Uh, most obviously, we only have the written record. Written records of judgment are very far from transparent. Obviously, no narrative of a ritual is transparent as Philippe Buch has shown. Um, but certainly written legal documents were probably more likely to phrase things in conventional legal terms to streamline and normalize um, than in court on the day. But if so, it's even more striking how changeable the reference points are um, and how, yeah, how changeable they can be even in this conventional format. The document I was just talking about survives as an original, at least, so we can compare it relatively safely with other originals produced by the Merovingian Chancery, where this document does stand out for its hardline insistence on the written word. This was certainly no consistent policy. So I would suggest as a distinction, as a working distinction, um, that legal rules, I mean, one would expect legal rules to be normally knowable in advance, stable and highly predictable, even if they require interpretation in order to be applied in any particular case, which is where uncertainty comes in. Whereas ritual rules, correspond more to a palette, a sort of range of symbolic resources where skilled practitioners um, need to combine and deploy them effectively in order to project the particular representation of themselves and their actions that they wanted their audience to accept. Um, obviously, there is also interpretation and uncertainty there as well. So I guess my point is that while rituals obviously do rely on reference to past rituals, they don't need to stay exactly the same in order to be effective. So in the case of ritual, skill involves not necessarily just a demonstration of knowledge of and adherence to a stable procedure, but the ability to adapt one's performance to particular circumstances while still making it look like the most natural and traditional way of going about things, something which is, of course, a fundamental quality of ritual. Um, the distinction isn't cut and dried, so I don't mean to say, obviously, that where there is a set of technical legal knowledge, there is not also plenty of courtroom ritual. Um, as we can see today, rather that in the early Middle Ages, the content itself of the legal rules invoked um, could be just as movable a piece as any other aspect of legal ritual. So is this how legal rules worked in early medieval Francia? Were they essentially a ritual repertoire for showcasing a decision, using legal language to express a decision actually made on a completely different, more political basis? And if so, is it possible to see law and legal concepts as making any distinctive contribution to the work of dispute settlement? This may seem like quite a naive question to ask uh, in this case, when, when clearly Drogo's judgment must have been a stitch up. Um, at that level of high politics, it's just impossible to imagine it being anything else anyway. Uh, not that there aren't stitch ups at much lower political levels too. Um, the question remains, if this was a show trial, for whose benefit was the show put on and why was it put on in that way? Uh, for a pure show trial, one would expect the frame of reference to be just more, more obvious, less controversial. The question applies even if you take the hypocritical position that it was only put that way in writing. Uh, the text is still in the end choosing to push 
a kind of fiction about what normal procedure was. And this just seems like a strange convoluted thing to do in order to make a result stick that was already presumably the object of consensus across the board. Everyone there must already have agreed that Droger was wrong and Magnolp was right. Um, the lack of a written document didn't obviate or replace the need for overwhelming consensus against Droger among those present, rather acting as if a document was the only acceptable final proof was dependent here on having managed to create such a consensus in the first place. So this isn't just storytelling in the sense identified and studied now for a long time by the law and literature movement. It is storytelling about what the law is. And this, it seems to me, kind of applies not just in this obviously unusual politicized high level case. Once you look for them, fictions come up quite a lot in early medieval legal documents. They've not necessarily all been identified as fictions. Um, so the drive to make things fit is extremely strong. Um, so we might instead try to build our models in such a way as to incorporate all surviving information. And this is um, deformation professionnelle um, in French, a predisposition acquired through professional training and practice. So as medievalists, we're so used to having to build models around extremely incomplete evidence that the urge to find a place for every piece of information is very strong. And this might in turn lead us to underestimate how contentious and tendentious the representations of law as well as of social reality put forward during a court case might be. So one example of, of such a legal fiction is the, is the principle that there was a link between legal status, free or unfree, and higher labor, du labor duties. Um, this is nowhere stated as a positive law, but capitularies do reinforce that unfree or lower legal category peasants couldn't refuse to do work they were asked to do. And it's also referred to in dispute settlements. So some peasants in a very well-known case heard by uh, the King Charles the Bald on 1st of July 861 uh, were clearly referring to that expectation when they backed up their estate manager against some other peasants from the same estate of Mitri who are claiming to be colony. So this is a tied but free peasant rather than Servi slaves. And the peasant said that these other peasants had always been Servi in inferior service to the said villa and that they had done more than colony by right and by law as is clear. Now, in practice, estate surveys suggest that the link between the labor owed and legal status was actually extremely loose and irregular most of the time legal status, whether someone was free or unfree, and the constellation of ideas connected to this, was brought in mainly when disputes over labor reached an impasse. Um, then it seems to have been used as a proxy through which to fight over sometimes minute differences in internal estate hierarchy and the distribution of duties as a way of discussing or reevaluating in terms of tenure. And those disputes normally hinged on a claim that dependents had stopped paying the dues and duties that they should have been paying or that they or that their parents had paid in the past. Um, but it seems quite clear, however, that the majority of these disputes took place at a time when lords were seeking not just to maintain, but to expand their demands significantly. So although the disputing process always made the argument look as if it was essentially about restoring the clarity of a past situation, it was actually rather more likely to be about renegotiating in the present. Legal status could be used by lords then to try to bring to heel a section of the population of a particular rural estate when they met with resistance in the face of increased demands. Um, so you could go, lords asked for more labor duties, peasants said no, 
uh, lords brought an accusation of unfreedom against some of the peasants, all of them um, therefore claiming their labor as available at will. So while the connection between legal status and the quantity of labor owed was ordinarily very tenuous and subsumed under individual arrangements, the two could, during disputes only, suddenly become much more tightly knit. But this was a completely artificial, tendentious connection. Most of the time, in more routine, non-conflictual contexts, the relationship between status and labor or status induced tended to remain extremely loose. So disputes make it clear, on the one hand, how little correlation might exist between working patterns and personal status, because plainly it was, there wouldn't have been a court case if it hadn't been actually very difficult to tell whether someone was free or unfree. Um, but those disputes also simultaneously show how much of the disputing process depended on everyone behaving as if such a correlation had always been in place and was perfectly transparent to everyone involved. And you could multiply examples in relation to unfreedom, which is the, the aspect of it that I know most about, in legal documents. So people behave, for instance, as if the only normal state of affairs was for everyone from the same family to be of the same status, free or unfree. Uh, and if a relative could be shown to be of one status, the same must hold true of the others, um, something which was patently not the case in practice. And the mismatch had real consequences in times of pressure. So one capitulary of Charlemagne discusses the case of a man who killed an unfree relative of his because he feared that he would be successfully accused of being unfree himself. And this behaving as if is, I think, key to understanding what law had to offer during this period. The examples from the deployment of ideas about unfree status that I just talked about, for instance, very much connected with law, uh, and in fact, a hardline reading of law um, in which slaves were slaves and the free were free, rather than with people's experienced daily reality, which was very much more fluid. The use of the language of law allowed then the co-production of fictions in which the very muddled stuff of social experience was made suddenly transparent or rather through which everyone could act as if it had been transparent all along. So when people brought up on freedom in the context of a legal case, they were not only relying on established ideas about unfreedom, they were also giving them currency. So while it's true to say that early medieval uses of law can look like they have more in common with ritual than with modern uses of law, and they do undeniably have a lot in common with ritual, legal ideas also did do more than that and did have a specific and distinctive contribution to make to the legitimization uh, of power. Um, law, like ritual, can be and has been seen as a mode of communication, but it went beyond expressing power in traditional form or reflecting social power relationships. One key contribution, which I suspect the use of legal language made, was in fact its capacity not to reflect common lived experience uh, and offering instead a highly stylized, heightened rendering of it an alternate reality or a displaced fantasy context in which everything was just different enough that problems could be solved which could not be solved in real life. So in other words, what made it productive and helpful in dispute settlement would have been that it allowed and encouraged a specific kind of what um, Pierre Bourdieu calls méconnaissance. Um, so that's the process whereby power relationships acquire symbolic legitimacy. 
I guess I would render that in English as miscognition, but if you have a more elegant translation, I'd be extremely grateful for it. Anyway, I'll stick with miscognition for the time being. Um, so miscognition, I think, allows us to think of people deploying legal concepts, lending a content and associations to these concepts and describing them a universal value, when ascribing such universal value to them was obviously tendentious, without necessarily doing so cynically or as a kind of fig leaf for their political strategizing, uh, which, as I said before, becomes weird past a certain point. You know, if the fig leaf doesn't actually cover anything up, why have it? I think there's two main types um, of such where that this kind of mis miscognition could be fruitful. And those are the ones that I plan to, you to look for in early medieval material. So first, miscognition regarding how a conflict settlement works in itself. Uh, and this can work on the level of detail, so acting as if points of procedure should obviously apply when I can think of almost none that actually applied in any genuinely consistent way. So this is the what Drogo's undoing was because of a case like this. Um, but it also involved miscognition at a more fundamental level because transferring the dispute into the alternate reality of law meant acting as if it had now been removed from the pressures of normal human power relations, either by applying fair rules or by submitting it to divine judgment as in ordeals or in any story included in a saint's life or a miracle collection. Um, records of disputes, even and maybe especially the stitch up ones, always involve projection, um, always involve projection onto a canvas where the rules of play had to be seen as even handed. And this is worth remarking on in a context where no one's idea of an ideal society was one in which everyone was equal. So given this, it's all the more striking that although it was accepted, apparently by all, that if found guilty of the same crime, a slave should suffer more bodily than a free person. This didn't mean people were not committed to the idea that innocence and guilt should themselves be determined irrespective of people's status. So this type of miscognition associated with using the language and mental furniture of law allowed status and privilege to justify themselves in the one arena where they were not recognized as key arguments. Um, the fact that elites still tended to win, much as they do in modern meritocracies, uh, provided the very essence of symbolic legitimation. Um, secondly, and as I've just discussed in relation to legal cases about unfreedom, it also permitted miscognition of participants' experience of their own social world. And this could be done, for instance, by a scene-setting work to establish what was normal, so literally what was the norm, versus what was the exception, um, the sort of thing that led people to suddenly no longer admit that there were such things as mixed status marriages or a diversity of statuses within the same family. And this reading means that law was a transposition, not a reflection of social life. Um, and I think that's what explains why slavery and law never matches what people call slaves are like in practice. If they were, the concept would be largely descriptive rather than productive, because it wouldn't be needed by anyone to achieve anything or add anyone closer to a desired outcome. So this means that legal concepts like slavery didn't have to apply in a consistent way or map onto socioeconomic practice in order to matter or to be useful. Um, using legal concepts allowed the substitution of issues, for instance, a displacement of the conversation away from hard to solve socioeconomic conflict into the legal sphere. What makes me hope that this, um, thinking of legal action in this period in terms of participants exploiting its scope for miscognition, 
um, what makes me hope that this is a helpful adjustment in perspective is that it means we no longer have to think in terms of pitting sources against each other for a true picture of law during this period. It helps to make sense differently, for instance, of the presence of anachronism. Anachronism, anachronism has been seen as a key problem in interpreting the, survival legal, the surviving legal evidence, um, both for written law and for documents. Um, so written law, because it seems to cast everything in deliberately outmoded terms, uh, with continued reference to classical Roman categories or to obscure sometimes comically folkloric Germanic terms and rituals um, that ultra-traditionalist bend um, reads like a willful denial of change in a period when Europe was changing out of all recognition. And for documents of practice, because they retain also such a highly conservative form, uh, imperfectly suited to describing the world they were meant to apply to, so, for instance, when documents of freedom were issued to ex-slaves purporting to turn them into Roman citizens. Once miscognition and role-playing are taken as a central element in legal practice, it becomes worth paying attention even to the most implausibly old-fashioned representations that early medieval people gave in order to justify their own actions. And I think this can help to explain the enduring relevance of law, including a very old law, without having to exaggerate continuity or seeing things in terms of simple survival. Seen in terms of these co-created fictions, scene setting and role play, anachronism becomes not simply dead letter or a passive inheritance, but a strategy with a lot to offer. Uh, concepts, individual words, tropes, standard phrases or expressions, all the way to more general principles, or indeed the conjuring up of entire fictional scenes sometimes. For it. I mean, the most extreme case, I think, uh, are cases in which early medieval scribes recorded the entry of legal documents into by then long defunct um, Roman civic archives. So again, uh, and again, to take the example of unfreedom, um, predictably, um, when early medieval people used the word servus, uh, slave, they did so not simply to, they did they weren't simply continuing to use a Latin word which had lost its earlier meaning. They were also playing at being Roman masters. Um, however different their own control over people may have been in practice. So once law is understood as a starting point for the construction of scenarios rather than dictating outcomes, uh, I think one can start to see why the most useful laws might not necessarily always have been the ones that came closest to the practical solutions eventually reached. So another example, again, related to unfreedom is the prohibition of marriage between free and unfree people. Um, constantly reiterated, perpetually flouted, um, it could nevertheless play an important role in furthering the on-the-ground strategies of lords, who could capitalize on their breach by demanding other forms of recognition and subordination instead. So um, a free woman who married a male slave was typically threatened with enslavement herself in laws, um, but many such women were left alone until the time came for them to inherit something, uh, at which point they could still keep their freedom, but at the cost of giving up some of their property. So the foregoing of one right, its conversion into another kind of advantage meant that it could remain worthwhile insisting for a long time on things which, at face value, don't always seem straightforwardly relevant to this period, um, like in some cases at least the distinction between free and unfree. So I think, so this explains, begins to explain why there could have been so much demand for legal materials that seemed so far removed from reality. 
um, the disconnection with reality was not necessarily a problem. In fact, it could represent what was most truthful about these materials. So um, to conclude, um, most existing studies tend to assume that the, I think work with the assumption anyway, that the bigger the gap between written norms and legal practice, the more irrelevant the norms must have been. Um, this I think is not necessarily warranted because such gaps could also be productive in their own right. Productive gaps allowed for the displacement of conversations and the substitution of the issues to which a conflict related. And this I think is an often overlooked, but actually a key outcome of the transposition of social conflict into legal terms. The active exploitation of the gap left between norm and practice could help to explain why, for instance, wherever one finds any level of engagement in practice with key legal principles, such as the prescription of mixed status marriage uh, that I just mentioned, or in fact, even the, in itself, the principle of legal personality, um, so the right to be judged by one's own law according to ethnic identity. This more often than not makes the situation less clear rather than more to us as historians, because this is where we're most likely to find a kind of whiplash inducing range of responses from obeying it as if no other option was conceivable to ignoring it entirely. Um, and this doesn't mean legal thinking was muddled or had lost, it, lost its edge. As long as one thinks about the aim as not necessarily being clarity, but having more options and more productive ambiguity that could then be resolved according to the terms of the co-created fictional version of legal space that was being constructed by the audience and the most dominant participants in any particular case. So I think, I hope this could help to explain why law and legal concepts remain such enduringly relevant ways of thinking about and representing power over things and over people, even in the absence of a meaningful coercive apparatus or of a discrete legal intellectual discipline. Internal contradiction, tension, confusion, apparent lack of direct applicability, far from being an obstacle to the usefulness of written law may well have been the lifeblood of early medieval engagement with it. I'll stop here.